millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. I decided for the new week I would give you a really hard quotation from Aristotle because Aristotle has a way of taking really clear and obvious things and making them sound utterly inconceivable. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to give you a statement from Aristotle. Ready? He says, What is to us plain and obvious is at first rather confused masses the elements and principles of which become known to us later by analysis. Okay, let me repeat that because it's long and technical, but I'll give you a clue. I'm actually going to use this tonight. That's why I'm troubling you with the hard one. I'm going to explain it in the course of tonight's discussion. He said, what is to us plain and obvious is at first rather confused masses, the elements and principles of which become known to us later by analysis. This is one of those statements, I'll just say this right now, that you read it and you're so annoyed at the author for writing it that it sticks in your craw. And then over the years, you kind of figure out what the heck he was talking about. It turns out that this statement is is one of the crucial methodological statements in Aristotle's writing. Almost everything he does as a thinker, the roots of it are in that statement. So it's a really, it's quite a valuable statement, but let me, let me come back to it. First, an update on the crime. I've told you that it happened in the late 16th century in Paris or near Paris, and I've been finding lots of evidence. One of the things I won't go into now as, as evidence is the zombies that have been walking around. But I'll just tell you right now that, that I did find something really grisly. Somebody named Harmony. Her body was found, and it had been divided into three parts. And then two of the three parts were disposed of, and only the third was kept. And so in a weird kind of way, she's still walking around and people think they know her. They can call her by name. I'm not sure if she's alive or not, but two parts of her are gone. So you find weird things when you do detective work. You all can do what you want with with that. But her name's Harmony and there's only one part of her three parts left. Okay, so um, 
The question for tonight, my dear Katharina, what's the question for tonight? Um, I'll read the whole question since we're going to have 15 minutes for it. And this was submitted by an anonymous user. This says, my question is how to actually make true classical education happen when I have four young boys with various needs. Even with keeping lessons short, it can be overwhelming. Can you provide questions I should be asking myself about how to structure our day? I'm continually asking God what he wants me to do, but I also need a general schedule to maintain order and prevent decision fatigue. Okay. There you have it. Now that, that is a very well thought out question. That, that's a question that tells me that the person asking the question is already a long way down the road toward understanding the answer for it and really being able to figure it out. Um, another quotation I'm going to give you another time that relates to this is, the, is, is um, an old saying. I don't know the source of it. It goes like this. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Right? Sometimes that teacher is a person. I'll grant you that. But it doesn't have to be. The readiness is all, as Hamlet said. And when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And this is a question if I can put it this way, I hope no offense is taken by the way I put this. This is a question asked by a student who is ready, a student who has been in the experience, I would argue probably has some really good answers that just need to be drawn out. Partly being human, but even more through experience, through objectives, through the end in mind. So to answer the question, I want you to notice the second part of it first, which is, well, I say the second part, the second part of my note, what I wrote while Katie read it. She talked about a general structure, right? That's a really good way to put it. We need a general structure so that decision fatigue doesn't set in. Now, this is really smart. <laughs> this echoes Genesis 1 to me vividly. Because in Genesis 1, what we see the Lord doing is bringing in the structure, right? And it also echoes what Aristotle was saying. And in fact, it leads me to one of my favorite authors, a text from a book that he wrote called, called Culture Counts. The author is Roger Scruton, and the, chap the book is called Culture Counts, and the chapter is called Teaching Culture. Now, He's going to be talking about this big concept of teaching culture, all right? But I'm tempted to just read this chapter to you and take up the whole, I have 12 minutes left, just take the whole rest of it up. But I won't because it's hard to listen to people read. But anyway, let me read to you what he says early on with the occasional comment to relate it to this specific question. He starts out the chapter this way. Children used to be introduced to mathematics by learning their what? Fill in the blank. What did children used to be introduced to mathematics by learning? And note that it was how they were introduced. Anybody know? See, my generation was the last generation to be obsessively taught this. So I'm wondering if that's if I'm the only person who can answer this with an obvious answer, an answer that's obvious to him because I'm so old. 
The answer is times tables. Yeah, they were introduced. They were introduced to mathematics by learning their times tables. An example of the rote learning condemned by Dewey. Once the tables had been internalized, please note that word. Once the tables had been internalized, children could do simple calculations quickly and proceed to geometry and algebra without pausing over their sums. Now, if anybody here has ever tried to do geometry and algebra and can't calculate quickly, you know that you're doomed. You can't think about algebra and you can't think about geometry because you have to think about what 14 times 13 is. And it's game over. It'll take forever. You will not like geometry and algebra if you have to be thinking about calculating. 50 years ago, well, let's go 75 years ago. If you went to school in America, the odds of you graduating fourth grade without being able to calculate very quickly in your head were very low. All right. So by the age of 16, mathematically inclined children had mastered the basics of differential calculus and were beginning to tackle differential equations. Now, listen carefully to this. Their first years of rote learning had, in effect, catalyzed a piece of inherited brain chemistry and created the neuronal links that permit the installation of one mathematical program after another. Now, I hate the analogy, but I get it. It's as though a program was put into your brain, right, with a computer. You put, it, you put an app in, and now there's all these things you can do. Of course, that, even that is something that earlier computer generations had a better sense of what he was talking about, because now people don't actually have to know computers, they just use them. Anyway, it was, it was as though a program had been put into your brain, and now you could add one mathematical program after another. That's how it used to be. Okay, things are no longer so, and mathematical competence is a dwindling asset in Western societies. One contributing factor has been the abolition of rote learning. One. Hint, hint, I'm going to tell you something else. That's what that number one there means. Equally important, however, has been a peculiar intellectual fallacy. This is what I'm looking for here. A peculiar intellectual fallacy, which holds that when learning a difficult science, we should begin from the basics. Now, before I read that, if I ask you the question, when you start a new science, you should begin from the basics. Would you have said, yeah, obviously? But listen to, what he, listen to what he goes on to say. Well, what he does next is describe how set theory was established in the 19th century as the most basic facts in math and then created the new math, which led to kids no longer learning math because they went straight to the basics, which had taken millennia to get to, instead of, I'll go on, I'll read it to you. In effect, in new math, the pictures place a barrier between the children and the natural youth of, use of arithmetic and daily calculations. And all subsequent learning has been slowed by this. And here's the quotation. The example teaches an important lesson. Those who understand a subject can deal with its foundations. Those who have yet to understand it must concentrate and concentrate instead on its most vivid and easily memorized results. Now, it might seem weird to you to say that three times two equals six is vivid and easily memorizable, but it certainly is compared to any abstract thought. And let's face it, little kids are memorizing that all the time. 
That is a vivid and memorizable result of math. Three times two equals six. It took millennia for chemists to get beyond four elements to the 118 elements. Do you see? This is something I've talked about before. So at this point, I don't want to say a great deal more about it. He goes on to apply that principle to how we should teach literature. And he says about literature that literature arranges itself like a tree for the scholar and not for the child. The child needs to learn what is learnable. I even put that in blue, see? Meanwhile, it is necessary for the, to learn what is learnable. Everyone who enters the world of culture seeks for guidance, but the guidance is there in the culture itself. And where is it? The territory's already been mapped out. The common pursuit of true judgment has been at work. So he says it this way, beginning with what is moving and memorable, Students uncover the links that join it to other works in the canon and which enable them eventually to make their own mental map of the territory. Okay, let me say that again. Beginning with what is moving and memorable, students uncover the links that join it to other works in the canon and which enable them eventually to make their own mental map of the territory. Now, what he's getting at, and he, he emphasizes the importance of judgment, but what he's getting at is that in a literary education, what you've got to give the kids very early, very early, probably first, is what he calls a touchstone, a classic, a work against which later works can be compared. And you need to memorize it, right? You need to get it straight and, and firmly in your head. Okay, now, you might be saying, what on earth does that have to do with the structure of my day? And what questions should I ask? Um, I, I would be prepared to contend that it raises a whole bunch of questions. But the main thing I want to emphasize is that he's talking about the need to lay down strong foundations in things that are vivid and memorable. And therefore, when we structure our day, we need to make decisions ahead of time. And, and the double decision that comes from this for me is that on the one hand, we need to make our decisions based on foundational principles. And secondly, we need to focus our instruction to the children on the most vivid and memorable things, not on nitty gritty details where all of us end up with um, decision exhaust, decision fatigue, right? Now, let me, let me then bring that somewhat down to earth. And obviously, I've taken too long on this part already. So we'll pick this question up again on Thursday unless people object to that. Um, but let me, let me say this. I want to just frame the building as it were right now. I want to say to start with that there are, there are certain things. Let me, let me address the question, what has to happen every day? Okay. What has to happen every day? And this is what I would argue has to happen every day. There are three categories, there are three, let me put it this way, there are three orientations that need to be attended to every day, three orientations. Second, there are five skills that need to be cultivated every day. And third, there are five activities that need to be practiced every day. And what's going to be the framework within which that's pretty, relatively speaking, easy is there are seven arts that you need to practice every day. Okay, now, um, 
last week we talked about the the uh, the grid, right, of the, the liberal arts and the subjects. And so um, if you saw that, you have some idea of what I mean by the seven arts. So I'm not going to talk about that at all right now. I'll just say that that every day you can do something with the seven arts. Let me talk for a moment about the three, I'm going to call it again, the three orientations. In other words, there's three ends, three targets that you're setting in the course of the day. And and you're going to do this in multiple areas. In fact, in every subject, if we're going to use subjects, in every art, in every content area, in every science, there's going to be three different ends you need to reach. One end is truth perception. There, There are truths that you want your child to come to see each day. If you want to put that a little more modernly and practically, if that's the way it is, you could say there are concepts or ideas that you want them to understand. Okay. The second thing is there are skills that you want them to practice. Skills, arts, virtues, anything like that. There, that that's the second thing you need to make sure happens every day. The third thing is there is information that you want them to remember. But I think a better way to put it is there are artifacts that you want them to, to, to put into their furniture, <laughs> that you want to furnish their minds with. So there is, so here would be something like a Bible verse, um, a, a poem, a, a song, right? A skill would be something like playing the piano. Um, although that also includes knowledge, of course. Let me just leave it at that for now, that every day you should, you should make sure that you, you, you cultivate a few skills, a few truth perceptions, and a few, what was the third one? Skills. Um, artifacts. Store a few, a few artifacts. But a few is the key word. Now, I talked about five skills, so let me give you the five skills. I think that every single day, remember, I'm just setting a frame here. Okay, I'm not trying to answer the question in all kinds of detail right now. The five skills that every single day you should try to to attend to. The first one is memory. No, it's not. Sorry. The first one is attentiveness. Everything you do with your child, everything your child does with his life depends on his ability to pay attention. And every day you should be doing something to cultivate attentiveness. The second skill then if, if attention is the first, the second is memory. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's not memory work. You know, we'd use that. We used to use that term. You guys heard that term, memory work? It's not really memory work. It's attention work. And one of the best ways to cultivate attention is to, take kids, to make kids memorize and repeat things. Okay, so memory work is the second. Attention, memory. The third skill is, is um, comparison. They need to get good at comparing things. And that's pretty easy because you just say, okay, compare that. The fourth one is perception. Now it's getting harder, isn't it? Perceiving. Perceiving with the senses? Absolutely. With the senses. But through the senses to perceive things with the intellect. That's what math teaches you how to do. And that's what happens when you memorize. A poem. You, you perceive a lot more than just the, the words from your senses, don't you? Okay, so, so perception. And, and of course, that's truth perception, beauty perception, and goodness perception, if you like. 
Then the next one is harmony, the, the skill of harmonizing, the skill of weaving things together. Absolutely, music is so important. But of course, music is walking around with two parts of her body missing now. Um, so so we, have, we have those basic skills of attention, memory, comparison, perception, harmony. If you do those five things on purpose every day, and you set as your goal that your child will practice some basic skills and perceive some basic truth and retain some basic artifact, then you will have had a good day. You will have had a good day because what's going to happen in their soul is going to be much more important than what's going to happen on the curriculum, right? Now, to do that, you're going to need content. You're going to need artifacts. You're going to need something to look at. That's where the Roger Scruton quote comes in, which is what you want is early, early in life. You want to give them really good. What was the term he used? Did anybody remember the term he used? Touchstones. You want to find touchstones. You want them to memorize King James, Psalm 23. You want them to memorize Shakespeare. And don't, don't say, oh, you know, that's too hard for little kids. You're looking at a kid up on the screen on my, my top left who was memorizing Shakespeare when she was four. She mem- she wants, when she was about four years old, she stood in front of a class and recited a poem by William Wordsworth before she was even in school. My heart leaps up when I behold. It was one of the most exciting moments in my life. And what she was doing was putting something in her soul that she had to feed on for the rest of her life. And she can comment on whether that was good or not, but there it is. Um, I was reading for Roger Scruton's book, Culture Counts. Um, so now there's five activities, which I'll mention very quickly, and then, and then um, we'll pick them up. The, now, by f- five activities here, I'm talking about basically a schedule. Okay, we're, get, we're getting closer now to the form of the day. I believe that every day must begin if you want it to be um, successful <laughs> in any meaningful way, it must begin with worshipful prayer. And I, I would just say that I think prayer is, in, in heaven, prayer is divided into two parts. Um, I think this is still true. The one part is holy, 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 and the other part is Lord have mercy. And those are the two things we need to be teaching our children. We need to begin and end every day with holy, 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 and Lord have mercy on me in the center. And so if we can begin and end that way, and the best way to do it is probably prayerfully say the, the Pater Noster, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, and then learn it in about 20 different languages, um, have at it. Um, sorry to go over. I just want to say something really quick, Katie. Can I do this? I, I had, a, I had a, a Sunday school class this last Sunday. We're going through the Lord's Prayer. And I asked the people in the class, what, is, um, what does bread mean to you? And for uh, about 45 minutes, we had what I, it was a spirit expanding, mind boggling, eye popping discussion about the significance of the phrase, um, give us this day our daily bread. It is an unfathomably deep prayer. And so you start just by memorizing it, right? Just like three plus two is five is really deep, but you memorize it to start with. And over the years, it unfolds and blossoms. So start with worshipful prayer. On the other, the other, what's going to follow, I'm not going to make any comments. I'm just going to list them. Um, the second thing is read something to them beyond their reading level. Now, I'm not putting this in sequence. I'm just saying make sure this happens. Read something to them that is beyond their ability to decode. It is absolutely critical that you read to them 
with no regard for whether they could read that passage by themselves. Because you don't read with the eyes, you read with the brain. And the, the processing of word uh, with the mind, I said I wasn't going to comment. Okay, read something beyond their, their level. History, literature, children's stories are okay, but so is Shakespeare. Okay, third. During the course of the day, set aside time, short times for skill exercises. Speed drills and math, three to five minutes, they should do those K to 12. Every single school day, they should be doing speed drills. And calculator will take them up, you know, right through high school. Um, short spurts of exercises, decoding, spelling, language, and so on. Then, short-ish explanatory lessons. And here I mean Socratic and mimetic teaching. Okay, short-ish explanatory lessons, which are then followed by short practices that are spaced apart. So for example, you learn a new math lesson, you should then practice it right away, and then you should pick it up about a half hour later and practice it for about two minutes, and then you should pick it up for an hour and practice it for about two minutes. This is a great advantage of teaching at home. At home, you can teach like you're teaching a human being, right? At, at school, you have to teach like you're teaching an administrative faculty. And, and so, you, you know, you have to just go by what the rules permit you to do. Sorry, commenting again. Um, short explanatory lessons, by which I mean mimetic or Socratic, followed by short practices of what they learned, if it was related to skills. And then finally, attention work. Memory, music. Music is so good for the memory. You, it's unfathomably good. And here, let me just say quickly, I recommend piano and violin because I don't know better. But the reason I like piano and violin is because piano is arithmetical and violin is geometrical. And both of them together become harmony. And you, it gives you a lot to think about as the years go by. Music is so important. So is drawing. Drawing with the pencil, drawing with crayons. If they're inept at it like me, they still have to do it. If they're totally gifted at it, like my three-year-old granddaughter, Serafina, she has to do it. Katie was very gifted at it. Make everybody do it because you learn how to see. You learn how to perceive. And music teaches you how to listen. And then, uh, and then coloring and things like that, of course. But notice what you're doing. Observation, imitation. Observation, imitation. Observation, imitation. That's how you pay attention physically. You observe and you imitate. And that's how you learn to see. That's how you learn to perceive. Now, I didn't put that in a schedule. I just was framing the sorts of things that have to happen every day. On Thursday, I'll pick it up again and get a little more specific because at this point, you might be thinking, golly, that wasn't very helpful. And I understand if that's how you feel right now. Give me another, give me another two hours on Thursday, and I'll get this 15 minutes worth of information across to you. But with that, um, yeah, pian the piano's arithmetical and the violin is geometrical. Yeah, because the keys are right next to each other and boom, 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 right? There's, it's, you can add them up. On a violin, it's, I know that you pluck a string with a piano and I know there's vibrations on it, but on a, on a violin, it's long, right? You're moving along the string and on a, it's plucking versus bowing. Bowing is more geometrical because ge geometry has to do, see, this is what happens. Geometry has to do with multitude and arithmetic, sorry, geometry has to do with magnitude, how much of something you're dealing with. And arithmetic has to do with multitude, how many of something 
so you can talk about the number of keys and chords and so on like that with the piano. It's not absolute. It's just different. And so it, it helps you. It prepares for both kinds of mathematical reasoning. Okay, so I'll end with that. Sorry to go over again. Um, I really am trying to be disciplined, and one of these days I'm going to get there. But um, Katie, did you want to add anything about this question, or do you want to go on to the next questions? Because she's got a lot. Maybe maybe Thursday I'll just let you answer so it can get be done in a timely way. But she's got a lot of experience and uh, good ideas on this. Um, I have some thoughts about it, but nothing that I could say very quickly. Okay. All right. What what are the what what do you have for the short pithy questions or answers? Um, yes. First question is in a sense going to just carry on from the last one, but could you tell a story that paints a picture of a day um, that is the true good and beautiful education? Can you paint a picture of that? A A day or a week, something concrete? Man, okay, I'll say this, like Charlotte Mason, where I'm going to start is atmosphere. Education begins with the atmosphere you put your child in. That certainly includes the social and it includes the physical. What, what I would contend here is that the atmosphere needs to be governed, right? It needs to be governed because you're preparing your child to grow up to take dominion of the world, of his portion, his duty in the world. And so he needs to see that happening around him, and he needs to be involved in the governing of the atmosphere. It also needs to be beautiful. There should be beautiful music. There should be beautiful books there should be just and and when i say beautiful basically i mean harmonious and and uh not chaotic right so so um don't feel like that means you have to have all kinds of money to throw into fancy works of art or anything like that in fact <laughs> i recommend original art even if it's by an amateur over prints that a lot of people think that's odd, but to me, there's something about original art that's kind of like live music. I'd rather listen to an amateur live band than a than a recorded superstar band any day. There's just something about live music, and there's something about original art. So the so the atmosphere is crucial, and I think I just ran out of time. Okay, it's hard to talk about that question in one minute. You know, she does that to me on purpose to trap me. Exactly. I have to to catch you in traps to make you go over a minute. This is true. Here's another one. Again, similar vein. When developing a vision for a homeschool co-op, what elements need to be covered so I'm not missing important aspects? Oh, you're going to miss important aspects. Just give up that that question. The, The question what needs to be covered is a good one. I mean, I'm telling you, when when Katie graduated, she was my third child. And each child, it got less anxious. But when my first child was in 12th grade, my whole thought for a year was, oh, my goodness, what have I done? What have I missed? You're going to miss so much. What's essential, however, is the true, the good, and the beautiful. And really, it's the stuff that we've been talking about tonight. Every single day, take a little bit of time cultivating a basic skill, a little bit of time gazing on something beautiful a little bit of time talking about and, and contemplating a great work of art or a great piece of music. Get them to know how these things work. Perception, truth perception, 
paying attention. Everything flows from paying attention. Everything, therefore, flows from worship. Because in my opinion, worship and prayer boil down fundamentally to simply giving your attention to God and noticing him and then responding. And so you do that, everything else will flow out of it. Time's up. Sorry. Okay. Um, Lots of great questions here. Um, This one says, what is the relationship between godly living and truth perception? If the liberal arts are skills of truth perception, how does virtue relate to truth perception? So one minute. Yeah, I think our Lord gives us the best image of that of all when he says that the lamp of the body is the eye. And if the lamp, therefore, is full of darkness, how great is the darkness thereof? Obviously, he's talking about the soul or the spirit, or both, maybe. Um, If you teach a child the liberal arts, there's no guarantee that he's going to become a virtuous person in a moral sense. But if he doesn't become a morally good person to some degree, (laughs) then the use of the arts is going to be corrupted and, and misdirected. And instead of him perceiving truth, he's going to perceive whatever's to his advantage. You are, we, we have, I, I started saying this in 1994, we're training our enemies. This is, this is the way it is, but I'd rather have a well-trained enemy than a, well, I won't go on. So, so, so the crucial point for us as Christians is it has to begin with Christ. It has to begin with gazing on him. Because spiritual perception is what gives us moral improvement, if I can put it that way. The spiritual precedes the moral. And then the moral enables us to perceive reality in light of what it is. Reality is moral. So if we, if we aren't moral, we're in discord with reality. And then in that sequence, the practical, you know, artistic vision and so on follows. Now, you can, you can cultivate all those other things and have an Oscar Wilde. Right. But it's not going to do him any good. So, but I mean, the confusion that can come in is why then teach them the liberal arts if they're not holy? Well, <laughs> because it can be, it's analogous to spiritual growth, right? The pattern of the pattern of intellectual growth and the pattern of moral growth is analogous to the pattern of spiritual growth. So you can use one to explain the other. Right? Our Lord does this. The pattern of a tree growing in a garden is analogous to our spirit growing. That's an amazing thought to me. The, 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 the pattern of our bodies being maintained healthy. Well, the pattern of our bodies seeing physically is what he uses to explain spiritual sight. Okay, I think I just went like six minutes on that one. Stopping. Okay. Last question. Um, what do you mean by the child's involvement in governing the atmosphere? Oh, I think, yeah, thank you. So, so, so the child is born um, a slave, okay? Rousseau was wrong. Children are not born free and everywhere they're in gym. Children are born enslaved. The only hope they have of survival is if their master, which is their mother, feeds them, takes care of them completely. But from that moment onward, your goal is to set that child free. And that's going to happen systematically or not systematically. It's going to happen over time. And it's going to happen in a new negotiation every day that's going to be a matter of conflict, especially when they become teenagers. Because every single day they're going to wake up in the morning with a conception that they can rule the world or that they absolutely can't. Rarely 
are they going to be in the middle and say, huh, I can rule this much, but I need more. But we've been created for dominion. We've been created to rule, not everybody, but rightly. And so we need to learn how to rule space. I would argue the first thing they need to learn how to rule, probably their bowels. And, but, then, but almost right away after that comes their bed. They need to rule their bed by making it. They need to rule their shoes by putting them away at the end of the day, right? What they're doing when they do this is they're not just bringing neatness to, 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 make, to give you peace of mind or make life easier. They're ruling. And they're, have you ever noticed how much happier you feel after you have made a bed or finished the meal? That's rest, right? That's rest. And so when you, when you go through life teaching your child systematically to rule one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing, that's, I would argue that's the goal of child rearing. So I'd start with something like their toys and shoes and bed. Then you get to something like a plant when they're old enough that depends on them for its well-being. Then you get them a gerbil, maybe fish. Eventually you get them a dog or a cat. And every stage along the way, they're ruling at a higher and more nuanced and more complicated level, but you've got to make it depend on them, right? You can't, you can't say this is up to you and then rescue the dog because your child didn't take care of it. If they can't take care of the dog, don't give them one yet. They have to prove. Our Lord tells us that if you're faithful in little, you're faithful in much. And that's what we're trying to do is give them the keys of the kingdom in a sense. We're trying to teach them how to rule by simple ruling going on to more and more complex ruling. And there's where the liberal arts come in, by the way. My daughter, Katie, is a great artist because she learned how to rule paint and brushes and water and matter. You see, time's up. More about how to structure the day and find the right rhythms. Mm-hmm. That's a good word, rhythm. Rhythm and harmony. Those are the principles of, of the day's structure, rhythm and harmony. All right. You want to close out, Dad? Anything else you want to say? I can tell you, and I know this with profound certainty. I'll tell you a story. When I was about 11 or 12 years old is my guess. You know how it is, moms. I went barging into my mother's room. No knocking or anything, just barging in. And there she was kneeling on the floor beside her bed, praying. And immediately, I knew that she was praying for me. And there's <laughs> just something inside said, you know, you need that. And, and I've had this, this um, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, very quickly, I'll tell you another little bit of a story from my childhood. I was a punk because I can blame others, right? I, I won't say why I was, I was a punk because I was a punk. Um, got in a lot of fights as a kid. I was, I was aggressive and just not a, not a peaceful person. And when I was about 15 years old, I was listening to kids give testimony at a summer camp. You guys ever ever hear, sit around a campfire giving testimonies? Is that still a thing? Uh, so back in back in those days, everybody was coming out of the hippie movement. So I, I was we were all giving testimonies around campfire, and some of these testimonies were amazing. Like this one guy had a dad who was a truck driver and a drunk and took drugs and beat them, and it was just an awesome story. And I'm sitting there as this 15-year-old kid thinking how disappointing my own, my own story was. So I tried to work something up, you know, tried to work up some really dramatic story. 
And I got up and I'm standing there in front of my peers, 15 years old, right? And there's about 160 kids who are age 14 to 17 or 18. And I start trying to make myself look really wicked. (laughs) And as I was talking, the only way I can explain it is that as I was talking, the Holy Spirit came and said, basically, I am not going to let you mock me. I am going to show you what you're actually like. And in a way that I can't even begin to describe, he pulled a veil off my heart and he said, that's you right there. Now, I'm not saying I heard voices or anything. There's, I, I'm completely making up a sensory way of putting it because I don't know how else to describe it. But I, I perceived into my heart and I literally froze up and couldn't talk. And you got to imagine this, you know, boneheaded little big-eared 15-year-old kid with hair down to his knees. And I froze up and I said, for, for I don't know, a minute, probably I just wept for a bit. And then, I, and then I said, please pray for me. And I gave the microphone and I sat down. And then I went home after camp and I was just as bad as I ever made no difference. But then about a month before camp the following year, my friend Tim, he says to me, you know, we're wasting our lives. I said, yeah, we sure are. <laughs> and, we, and then we had one of those kind of cool teenage experiences where you give your life to the Lord. They're, they're valuable experiences. They're a little simplistic, but a lot of people need them, and I did. Um, so then I go to camp, the next same camp, the next month. And the first day of camp, if it was less than a dozen people, adults and kids, if it was less than a dozen people, I'd be, I'd be very surprised to, to dig that out of my memory, came up to me and they said, how are you doing? Like spiritually, how are you doing? And, <laughs> and I was befuddled by this. And so I, so I said, why do you ask that question? And actually, most of the time they said, I've been praying for you all year. And I mean, I cannot tell you how deeply that sank in. I am, I am the most dependent person you will ever meet on other people praying for me. And, and if there is any value in my spiritual life, and if there is any um, benefit to anybody through me, it's because so many people, starting with my mother, have been praying for me my whole life. That's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my spiritual secret, as though I have one, is that people pray for me. And if you, if you will keep praying for me, that I will cherish that more than anything else. So Jill and Dan, thank you for praying for me. Argentina has closed their airspace until what? Until September? Grown monotonous, yeah. Families endeavoring to persevere, yep. Absolutely. We're living in a time... Somebody, somebody said it seems like the, uh, the evil one has just sort of aligned all these forces and they're all coming at us at the same time. And it's, it's strange that way. But the hand of the Lord is not shortened and that he cannot save. He's, he's, in fact, I was, sitting, I was sitting in my family room. We, we, we like to pray in this one room. And we have some pictures of, of some great heroes of the faith in that room. And I was, I was looking at these pictures 
some of whom were martyred. And, and I was thinking, I think Katie, you were there during this moment. We were, we were talking about um, all the things going on. And for a moment, this sense that really, literally, our Lord Jesus could come back like now. There's, there's, no, there's just nothing that, that, that's preventing it. And I had this feeling, I won't say I had this feeling like he's going to come now, he's going to come now, but I just had this really strong feeling of he could come. And what else do we want? What else could we possibly want? He's preparing a place for us. And why is he preparing a place for us? So he can come again and bring us there. That's why he hasn't come back yet. He's preparing a place for us. That's just so, such an amazing thought to me. So let's, um, where this world is not, not ultimately our home, right? So let's, let's, let's pray that. Let's, what somebody just wrote, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Let's pray that. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll pray it and then maybe mention a couple of these other things and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, I won't say no to prayers. Thanks, Kristen. That's, that's a good way to put it. Always. I just appreciate so much those of you that, that remember me and my family and your prayers. So let, let's pray. In fact, um, yeah, let's pray. Um, my church uses debts and debtors, so that's how I'll say it, if you don't mind. And let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and Lord, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because the kingdom and the power and the glory all belong to you. They have always done so they do now and they always will so as we endure together and separately this onslaught of possibly the evil one certainly of inconvenience of probably for some of us depression monotony was used lord you've promised to come back and we look for that. But I pray that right now you would come and visit us by your Holy Spirit, that you would come and abide in us, that you would remain in us, and that those things in us that drive you away, those closings of the door that we hurl in your face, that you would forgive us, woo us, keep knocking on the door, or even as John Donne put it, batter my heart three-person god we are so hungry hungry for you and if you will come and visit us and fill us with your life and your grace and your spirit we can be instruments for you but without it lord there's nothing that we can offer to this world so we say again thy kingdom come and thy will be done as it is in heaven, so on earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Well, thank you. Gosh, it's a beautiful thing to be able to pray together, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you. And may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. And you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.